Luke chapter 16 is where we'll be, but uh, in verse 19. But in the beginning of Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it says that tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus was and is the friend of sinners, amen? And the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of that day in Israel, uh, steered clear of tax collectors and sinners because they had an external relationship with God. They believed that by keeping a set of rules that they were made righteous, and therefore if they went and hung out with people who were unrighteous, that they would be tainted. And so they had this religious legalistic relationship with God and therefore with everybody else. And they strictly observed the Old Testament laws and rituals, and they believed that they were right with God because of this outward manifestation of what they did. But over and over again, Jesus comes and exposes them publicly over their hypocrisy, that outwardly they appeared religious, but what was going on internally uh, was, was evil. They were full of wickedness. They were full of greed. They're full of murder. And last week, we ended in verses 13 and 15 uh, in Luke 16, where Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one or you'll love the other. Either you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And we talked about money last week, so if you missed that, uh, you got away lucky. Um, But the Pharisees, it says in verse 14, loved money. They heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. You know, he knows your hearts. What, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. We do not have a great estimation of what is important to God. We're skewed in our thinking. We judge each other based upon each other when we're all broken and fallen. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. They were seen as these super religious people who did all the right things and they deemed themselves righteous before God because of their standing, their standard for judgment and judging themselves was how they compared to their brothers and sisters, the people around them. And so because they kept the Sabbath to a T, because they went to church exactly the way you were supposed to church and they parked in the right spot and they gave the offering the way it was prescribed and they, and they did everything that was just done by the book and other people didn't, people looked at them and they said, wow, and they kind of ticked that in. But what they neglected is what God required out of the heart, what the law actually required out of the heart of a person. They were fooled because they loved the praise of men. How often do we compare ourselves to others and think that we are right before God when actually the standard is Jesus Christ in his absolute 100 sinless perfection? And so they paid attention to what could be seen by men, but they neglected what God saw the heart. And we saw that as Jesus was ministering to tax collectors and sinners, they used that opportunity to say that Jesus was not upholding the law because he was hanging out with those who were unclean, those who were sinners, those who were messed up, instead of separating himself from them like they did. And so today Jesus is responding 
in verses 16 and 17 to those accusations where he says the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of the pen to drop out of the law. In verse 16, Jesus says, so the law was proclaimed until John. The law is the first five books, basically, of the Old Testament, and the prophets were um, the ones who would call out to Israel when they broke the law for them to return, and also foretold their need for a Savior. The law can be summed up in the Ten Commandments, basically, and we know we can even sum it down into two commandments, uh, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. But the Ten Commandments are there. It says, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall make no idols, you shall not Take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet. And then, so you have the law, which is, this is the moral law, and then you have other ceremonial laws and civil laws, and, and so the, the whole first five books of, um, of the Bible they call the Pentateuch, the law, would deal with how Israel was governed. And this is the moral law. But the prophets, which were preached also, they warned Israel when they broke the law and God's judgment was going to come upon them, but it also foretold of their need for a Savior, the restoration of Israel, which would come through the Messiah. And I don't want to get too deeply into that. But the law was given by God. Why was the law given? The law was given by God, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, so that trespasses might increase. So that trespasses might increase. In other words, we are sometimes fooled into thinking that we are right with God unless we know a standard. When God said, do not lie, you realize that we're liars, right? How many lies does it take you to make you a lie? A liar? One, and we're guilty of breaking God's law. And so when the, the law is introduced, it reveals what is actually in the heart of a person. It doesn't change you, it shows you, it reveals who you are. And so God's standard was presented not to change us, not so that we could try to keep all these things, although His law is standard. It shows us that we can't keep it. And that was His point, was that the law preceded grace. The law was pushed in there, pointed towards people so that the nation of Israel would be anticipating a Messiah. And God calls that in, well, Paul calls that in Genesis, I think, Galatians 3, a schoolmaster, so to speak. It was pointing them to a Savior, Jesus Christ. The law shows us that we're lawbreakers and that we're sinners and we're in need of a Savior. And so as the law pointed the nation of Israel for their need as a Savior, um, Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist actually came on the scene and now started to proclaim the solution to that. And so the law was proclaimed until John, Jesus says, John the Baptist, that is, the message of the good news or the gospel of the kingdom started with John's call for people to repent and to turn and to put their faith in the Messiah. And that's what he was pointing towards. And so the law was driving sinners to Jesus' message of salvation, uh, the nation of Israel uh, dr- being driving them uh, to be saved from the judgment of God through the faith in Jesus Christ. And as John, First uh, John chapter one seventeen says, this is for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I love that. And because the Pharisees they were the legalists, 
of the day, they despised the message of mercy and grace that Jesus was bringing. They thought that by keeping the law, they could be justified before God, but they did not keep the law because they kept it externally. They didn't realize that the law also pointed to the need to be have an internal righteousness. And that was the problem, is they had all the outward stuff done, so to speak, but truly what was in their hearts, Jesus began exposing. And Jesus made clear what the law demands. Jesus came on the scene. He didn't say, I'll forget about the law. And that was the thing. They're going, you're a lawbreaker. And he's going, no, 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 no. I'm bringing a message of the kingdom, which is way more difficult than the law, so to speak. It brings out the heart and the intention of the law. And here it is in Matthew chapter 5, 21, where he starts explaining a little bit. He says, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, right? We just read that. That's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. And so Jesus says, okay, great. You think it's just because you don't kill someone. That's great. And what does Jesus go on to say? He says, but I tell you, verse 22, that anyone who is what? Angry with a brother or sister will be subject to what? Judgment. Well, that's a bummer. So it's not actually that you just kill someone in anger. It's actually where that started that we're going to be held accountable for. How, how do you like that? And he goes on again in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5, and he does this several times, but he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, right? And what does Jesus say? But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, it's not the outward action. It's the inward uh, heart that God is looking at. You see, they were justifying themselves before other people, the Pharisees were, because they didn't technically do a lot of this stuff. But what was in their hearts? And that's what Jesus was going at, saying, you hypocrites. See, God desires a broken spirit and a contrite heart. All the sacrifices in the world don't make a difference if the heart is not right before God. And what the law shows us is that our heart's not right before God. We need to be saved from ourselves. And what's the solution from that? We need a new heart. This heart is just desperately wicked, deceived. Above all things, who can know it? We need a new heart. How can I get a new heart? The Lord wants to give you a new heart. He wants to give me a new heart. How? By taking that old one out and giving you his, so to speak. It's called being born again. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to die for the penalty of our sins. That through faith in Christ, that he, believing that he took my place because I broke God's law, I'm guilty, I'm going to pay for it. But if I believe Jesus took my place, which he did, when he was, well, the wrath of God was poured out on him in my behalf, something happens. I am now born again by the Spirit of God. God gives me a new heart. And now... I can and I do desire to keep the law of God, not as a means of righteousness, just because that is my new nature. That's, a, that's called life by the Spirit. And I don't have time to get in all that right now. 
But Jesus was constantly pointing out that the Pharisees did not keep the whole law, and they neglected the intent of God's law, that they would have the heart. And the law was not given to change people, but to wake us up, wake them up to the fact that they need to be saved. And Jesus is hanging around all of these people who are convicted by the law, by the preaching of the law, that they're there's going to be judgment to come. There is no solution except for total uh, repentance in, in, in throwing themselves at the mercy of God and faith in the Messiah to save them. And they are pressing in. They are grabbing for the kingdom of God, this new message. And Jesus said that they'd be forcing their way into it, Jesus says. And this implies that it's not easy to inherit the kingdom, of, not to, to receive this new message. It's not easy. The law drives you to a Savior, but what needs to happen in order to receive forgiveness, to receive salvation, is a person must repent, abandon everything they are and all they have before God, and submit their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ from that day forward. It's a total, absolute surrender. And he talked about you must hate your family. In other words, your family can't be in control of your life anymore. Jesus is. Your job can't be. Money can't be. You can't serve two masters. He's, he's going through all these things and pointing out all these dualities to say that the Lord has to be First in all, just there is nothing more that you own. You have written over your life to him like that son who came back and said, I will be a slave. And you find out when you actually do surrender and, and you do receive Christ is that he makes you a son. He puts his coat of righteousness on you. He brings you to his table. It's a beautiful picture makes you a daughter, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so that belief, the reason why they're pressing in, they're grabbing for it, is their belief must be demonstrated by their repentance and obedience in Christ. And that's the f- proof of faith. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, 24, make every effort to enter in through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. You see, the message of the good news is being preached. Many are forcing their way in, so to speak, but not many are going to make it. That's what Jesus is saying. They they want it, but they're not willing to give up. And many who are not willing to give up are the religious, are the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees thought that because Jesus was hanging around with these sinners that were desiring to be saved, that Jesus was somehow disregarding the law. And so is Jesus disregarding the law of God? Does the message of salvation contradict the law of God? No, they work hand in hand. Jesus clarifies that in verse 16 and 17. Although the good news of the message of the kingdom is now being preached, make no mistake, verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. In other words, it's easier for it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for an E to become an F in, in the law. Nothing's getting taken away from the law. The law stands. Because the law's purpose is to declare the holy, righteous standard of God and all the world is subject to it and they will be held accountable to it and it's to drive them to a savior. They need a new spirit. They need to be forgiven. 
so that as we feel the weight of God's perfect holy law as humans, that we have broken it, we realize that we will be held accountable unless we're saved. And Jesus died in our place to take the penalty for us that through faith in his death and the resurrection, we are justified before God. That means ju- made, made declared innocent. And because of this resurrection, we're also going to have new life. That's the way God works it. Because if Jesus died and was in the ground, what's the difference between him and anyone else? No, he has victory over life, and so we will have victory over life. And so Jesus is saying, in no way am I going to I go against the law. Actually, you Pharisees are. And he turns it on them. And here's where he's going into this one amazing parable story that, that we are pretty familiar with. And Jesus points out an area, um, well, before we get to the parable, but Jesus points out an area of the law where they have violated God's law. He says, you guys think I'm violating the law. No, you're violating the law. And he turns it around and says, verse 18, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Let me read it for you. Again, this is in the law of Moses. Divorce happened, and so so there had to be laws regulating what happened. God is not promoting it. He's saying that if it does happen, because there is sin, these are the things that happen. If a man marries a woman or who becomes displeasing to him, He finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her out from his house. And after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man. And her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce. He gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Don't bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God who is giving you an inheritance. I'm not going to get deeply into this today. But so it says that if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he divorces her. And what Jesus was pointing out, let's not get into marriage and divorce divorce right now, but Jesus was saying that their interpretation of that was, what does displeasing mean? Men, don't answer this. (laughs) Keep quiet. I'm helping you. (laughs) What does displeasing mean? Well, if you're a guy, you would like to interpret that loosely, especially if you're a guy in charge. right? And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. So much so that if she was a poor cook, they interpreted that as to meaning displeasing. If she dishonored her mother-in-law, that was displeasing. That was grounds for the divorce. Or if she wasn't as, as pretty as another woman that whatever. These are all rabbinical interpretations of that law. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, listen, you've interpreted this law to benefit your own sinful desires, your own lusts, the evil that's in your heart. You've made it very convenient for you, haven't you? That is not the intent. God's intent is that man and wife would never be separated, that divorce is hated by God, Malachi chapter 2. It's not permitted but it does happen. And we can talk about that in sec- and when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, more in depth. 
than Jesus' other teachings in the gospel. But the point is, is that they're saying that Jesus is lawless when actually they're the ones who were lawless, that were interpreting laws and, and making it in such a way that it was beneficial to their own flesh because what was in their hearts? They were evil. In the beginning, then the beginning of verse 19, Jesus gives us a story that many of us know. And as we read through this, think about what Jesus has just taught about the riches in this chapter, the love of money, the hypocrisy, without a heart towards God. It's not a sin to be rich, by the way. It's a sin to be rich and not be rich towards God. Amen? When money is your life, not the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's, it's the difference between being a steward of the riches of God and being uh, someone who is mastered by them. And it's very hard for us in America to understand that sometimes. But keep those things in mind. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees here. He says in verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Ew. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side or bosom, some of you reads. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, verse 23, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received his bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go to you from, here, uh, from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, really quickly, I have to shed some light on this. There are, there are two men. And this is one of the, um, this is the only parable where Jesus actually uses a name or names within it. So sometimes people take this more literally than not. And, and I think that's, that's an okay interpretation if you'd like to. Um, but there are two men, a rich, beggar, a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. The rich man lived in luxury, which was temporary, correct? And Lazarus lived in agony, which was temporary also. They both die. Common denominator, they both die. Lazarus is in luxury now eternally, and the rich man is in agony eternally. They switch places. And Jesus gives us some description of where these men went when they die. And there's a slide uh, that we have. I don't know if, if you have it or not. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that really helps. Sorry. Uh, but this, it describes as a place called Hades. And if you look at this, the, the circle on the bottom is basically what they're talking about. That I don't want to get into Greek mythology and all that type of stuff. But the idea is that 
Some, if someone's taking this literally, um, there's a place called Hades somewhere. Don't know where it is. In the center of the earth, who knows? Um, that isn't the real important thing. But Hades is there, and that is the com- apartment where the Old Testament or where the lost people go when they die. That is, it's a, it's a holding chamber, so to speak. And it was believed that before Christ was resurrected or before he died, that there would be another place across the great gulf from there called Paradise. And that is called Abraham's bosom, where Abraham, the Old Testament saints, would be. And when Christ came and he preached to the, to the dead, when he was dead, he came down and preached and set the captives free. There's some verses there, I don't want to get into it this morning, that took the people in paradise. And now to be absent, up to, up to heaven, and to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Some people believe that is what this place is and what it's talking about. So basically what Hades is, is called hell. It's when people who reject Christ, when they die, they go to this holding tank called hell and tell the great white throne judgment in which everybody will be resurrected before Christ. He will give out his judgment. Then hell and death will be cast into the eternal place called Gehenna. And so that is that's what some people believe. Some people believe they're just saying paradise is, is a... Is, a, is, an idiom for, is an idiom for heaven. And the great gap is that there is no, you can't get from one place to the other, heaven and hell. So however you interpret that, um, go for it. But the point that Jesus is making is that the reality of those two places is real and what they experience is real and what, what they're experiencing is permanent. And so... In verse 22, Lazarus the beggar was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. In verse 22 through 23, the rich man, when he died, he was buried, but he was in Hades. There's a gap between these two places, between the place of torment and the place of comfort. And Jesus is describing a place where, where those Old Testament lost and those now who die go when they die. Nevertheless, those who reject Christ are sent to where that rich man is now, Hades, a place of torment awaiting the great white throne judgment where at the end of days all of those in hell will be taken out of Hades, judged, and then thrown into the lake of fire called Gehenna. Gehenna was a term which they would understand because in Jerusalem they they burned their trash, okay? They, They did not know about carbon emissions. They didn't know any of that stuff. That's why the ice caps melt. No, I'm just kidding. Um, on the other side of the city, they would they'd dump their stuff into the Valley of Gehenna. And as that went, was down, there was just a constant fire pit of things smoldering and burning. And they would just constantly be tossing their trash off the side of, of, of this, uh, this wall. And it would just be in this valley. And it would just be constantly burning day or night. And so it was a very visual picture that, that Jesus took to show them what would happen if they rejected the gospel, if they rejected the Messiah, their Savior, the Lamb of God who came to take away their sins. They would spend eternity in Gehenna. The rich man was in this place of torment. And notice what he was experiencing, verse 23. In Hades, it says, where he was in torment... He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So the rich man was experiencing what? Torment. And notice something else. 
that he could what? He could see. He was conscious. He could see. He could see Lazarus far away. And so that's very important to know. What else? Verse 24. And so we called to him, Father Abraham. Now this is speaking to Jews here. Abraham supposedly was the father of all the Jews. And they thought that they were, because they were descendants of Abraham, that they were righteous. And God makes that very clear, that just because you're connected to Abraham genealogically does not mean that you are of God. You must believe and repent. So he called to, his, he called to Abraham, Father Abraham, have pity, or some of your translations say, mercy on me. And sent Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Notice verse 24 shows us that this man was conscious. He could speak. He could call out in agony. He was crying for mercy. He was thirsty. He was so in torment that even one drop of water on his tongue would have been an act of mercy. He was in fire, experiencing great pain. Jesus is describing a literal hell to us. And because it is a spiritual place, he is using physical analogy, something that we would understand to describe what is happening. So Jesus says it's a place of total darkness, and yet there's a place of a flame that's not ending, where the worm never dies, and all this type of stuff, these pictures. He keeps trying to paint the reality, just like he's trying to paint the picture of the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to paint a picture of what this eternal destination is for those who reject Christ. And notice that this is something that is ongoing, and it doesn't stop. And he can't do anything, and he's crying out. It is horrible, and Jesus is describing that to us. It's a place he spoke of and warned of. Some say even, he spoke even more of hell than he did of heaven. It's a prison for those awaiting that great white throne judgment. And in this prison, the rich man calls across the great divide to Abraham, asking that Lazarus would come dip the fi- his finger um, in water and, and put it on his tongue. And, and some say that, that notice that Lazarus still thinks I mean, the, the rich man still thinks of Lazarus as his servant. Hell doesn't change a person. It crystallizes who they are. Verse 25, But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. We all received good things. It's the common grace of God given to all of us. Breathe in that air that God's given us. We have rain that comes down and life and joy and people around us. There's common grace. There's good things that God has given us. But Jesus is using extremes here. He's doing it for a, for a reason, okay? He says, notice these things. In your lifetime, you received those good things. You received comfort. And Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted, and now you're in agony. And besides all this, between you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go, if we wanted to, we could, we couldn't. Either way, you're stuck. It's permanent. 
The man desired to leave, but he couldn't. And those in paradise who saw the tormented person and desired to help were not allowed to cross over. There was a great abyss, the bottomless pit, probably called the Abuso, where the demoniac, remember when Legion was cast out? Uh, and he said, well, you know, please don't send me into the abyss before it's time. And there's other things that Peter talks about, angels chained in darkness there and all this stuff. That pit is, I don't, we don't understand it, but it's horrible. But verse 20, the rich man realizes he's, there is no escape. And he answered, then I beg you, Father, then send Lazarus to my family. And so notice he experiences concern for those who are, have yet to come there. And so he's crying out, please do something about this. He said, send Lazarus, <laughs> there he goes again, to my family for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will also come to this, not come to this place of torment. I don't want them to come here. Please send Lazarus. And the rich man's conscious of his family. He knows that they're headed for this place, but he can do nothing about it. And he begs Abraham to send Lazarus. In verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. They aren't going to listen to Moses. They aren't going to listen to the prophets. They aren't going to listen to the law. They aren't going to respond to the law. But if someone raises from the dead, they will listen to them. He said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus said, a wicked and perverse generation seeks a sign. He said, the only sign that I will give you is the sign of Jonah. That three days, three nights, he was dead in the belly of the whale, and he was raised on the third day, so to speak. That the only sign that I'm going to give you is the resurrection. But see, the law points people to Christ. And if they reject the law, what, the, the sign that points to Christ, what makes you think that they're going to receive the one it points to? They're not. That's why Paul says the law is for the lawless. We're all under the law until we're under grace. <laughs> this was Jesus' point to the Pharisees. They rejected the law, and it pointed them to the Messiah. And if they would not listen to the Mos- Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to Jesus, even if he's raised from the dead hardening of the heart. And sadly, I believe those Pharisees who heard Jesus speak of this parable that day have been in Hades ever since the day of their death, crying out in agony, asking for mercy, and God will have none because they had their time. Now is the time where God is extending mercy through Jesus Christ. Now is the time. The day your heart stops, it's over. And you will end up in one of two places. In the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in the place of great comfort, or in this place that was described. See, hell is really serious. It is the most serious discussion we have. 
So much so that all of us who have rebelled against him by nature are children of wrath. God loved us so much. He doesn't want us to go to that place so much that he sent his only son. That's how serious it was to him. That God said, see my son. And he poured out his wrath upon his son that we might go free. And to reject that offer, to reject that extension of mercy, of total forgiveness, of absolution of of our sins, is to fully embrace that destiny of hell. So people say, you know, God doesn't send people to hell. People send people to hell. And that's true. But no doubt, God's going to seal the deal. When you reject his son, you've rejected the only hope. God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's his heart. But the only way for him to overlook our sin is that it would be paid on our behalf and that we would receive forgiveness by faith in Christ. And that's just not a one-time prayer, by the way. I keep saying this. We pray, but then it's now a whole life that lives in light of that. Does that make sense? That's the evidence of it. That's what a true Christian is. They follow the Lord. So if you are here this morning and you've been playing religion, you're going to church, but you don't have love of God in your heart, I can't encourage you enough to repent and to call out to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive his total, absolute, 100% forgiveness and mercy. I don't know. It's serious. Repent. Turn from your sins. Turn towards the Lord. Surrender your life to him. Believe upon him fully. This world is temporary. Our air conditioning is temporary. Our medication is temporary. Our food is temporary. Our relationships are temporary. It's going away, you know? The things we have, the pain you have is hopefully temporary. <laughs> if you're in Christ, right? Whatever comforts or thrills you experience in this life, they will end. And you will be in one of two places. We will be in one of two places either the inescapable prison of hell awaiting eternal judgment or in the presence of God where there is joy unspeakable. I want to finish by reading Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and, in, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up their dead that were in them. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Do you want to be judged according to what you have done? I would like to have none of that. Those without Christ are judged according to what they have done. Not so they get rewarded. This is for punishment. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Is your name in the book of life? It's what it all comes down to. It's what this is all about. Respond to God's mercy now. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and your name will be written in the book of life, not because of your works, but because of his work done on your behalf. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's like that beggar running to the Father and saying, I'll be your slave. I've got nothing to offer. You see, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And as we call out to him and say, oh, I've got nothing. Have mercy upon me, O oh God. He is faithful to blot out all of your sin and transgression and to make you the son and daughter that he promised he would be. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. The deep, deep love of Jesus. So respond to the Lord. Turn to him. Believe that he died for you and that he rose again on the third day. And you will be born again. You'll be given a new heart. And from this day forward, you're going to be called to follow Jesus obediently as the sons and daughters that you are. And will we be tripping along the way, of course, until that day when we get our new sanctified bodies, amen. We're going to need each other. We're going to need prayer. We're going to stumble, but we will be lifted up by the Lord. I want to pray right now, and we'll, uh, we'll end. Let's bow our heads. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the reality of hell and the reality of a Savior who saves us from it. Oh, God, thank you that your name, Jesus, means that God saves. Saves from what? Saves from this. Thank you for your mercy. If any of you have not given your heart to Jesus Christ, now is the time. Raise your hand and let's pray together. Let your pride go and just raise your hand and we'll pray for you. Lord bless you. Lord bless you. God sees your heart. The hand is a step of faith. It's between you and him, and I'm going to pray for you. This is for you. God bless you. Anyone else? Will you pray with me in your hearts? Lord God, I'm a sinner. I fall short before your standard. I'm guilty of breaking your law. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of all my sin. I don't deserve it, but I receive your forgiveness. Thank you. I turn from my sin now, and I'll follow you all the days of my life as you empower me to do it. 
in the name of Jesus. Now for the rest of us who are teetering on hypocrisy, I want you also to raise your hand. Say, God, cleanse me and help me. I'm with you. Lord, bless you. And I want to close by just you privately praying to the Lord in your heart about those issues that he's speaking to you about, just for a minute or two, between you and your loving God who has bought you, who does love you. You are his son. You are his daughter. And he's drawing you close. Pray to him. Call out to him. Father, we thank you for your son. And we thank you that the Spirit is, is speaking to your church. And we ask that we would hear and follow. We love you. We can't wait to see you. We want your kingdom to come and be here on earth as it is in heaven. Empower us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us your joy. Kick the enemy in the teeth. We love you. In the name of Jesus, amen.